In episode 9 for Five Pillars of Biblical Manhood, Pastor John Mark Caton uses the example of the Corinthian church to showcase three failures that occur when Christians don't do everything in love. Now let's hear from John Mark. All right, good stuff, guys. Well, listen, I want to invite you as we, um, as we look to God's Word today, and we're at our fifth pillar in our five pillars of biblical manhood. Uh, we're at that last pillar, and we always start in each one of these pillars of biblical manhood uh, with those who epically failed, uh, and then we'll look at those who succeeded in this space, in this area. And today we're going to look at a failure of a church, and it's the Corinthian church. You know, a lot of times... Uh, people have a tendency to look back uh, on the New Testament and said, you know, if we could just be like those New Testament churches, everything would be great. Uh, I want to encourage you, if you have that thought process or if you hear somebody say that, uh, ask yourself, did they actually read the New Testament? Because if you look at every one of these churches, very rarely do you see these churches that had it all together. Uh, if you go look at the seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, there's only one that Jesus didn't criticize for something uh, in Revelation. If you look at the Galatian church, they were a bunch of legalists. If you look at the Corinthian church we're going to look at today, they were divided, fractious, they were immoral. Man, so understand this, that when you look around at the church today, uh, it's very similar to the way it was in the early days. And so today we come to the fifth, fifth pillar. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13 and 14. And here's what Paul says to the Corinthian church. He says, be on your guard. That was pillar number one. Stand firm in the faith. That was pillar number two. Be courageous. That was pillar number three. Be strong. That was pillar number four. And here's number five. Do everything in love. You know, as men, it, we find it oftentimes easier to think through the idea of being on our guard or standing firm or being courageous and being strong. Those are kind of dude things to do, right? But Paul also says, hey, as men, as godly men, we also have to learn the art and the act, the art and the act of doing everything we do in love. If it's in your relationships, if it's in your friendships, if it's at the office, it's certainly at the church, that we want to do everything we can in love. And so Paul, really, as I think about today, uh, the church that he is writing to was an epic failure in this space. The, the church that he is writing to, saying do everything in love, has been an epic failure in this pillar, in this space. Why? Because they were fractured, they were divided, they were unloving in so many ways. My guess is, if I said, hey, tell me your favorite verses on love in the New Testament, most of you would say 1 Corinthians 13, wouldn't we? But if you go look, and we're going to today, at the context of 1 Corinthians 13, you want to know why Paul has to define love so well for the Corinthian believers? Because they had screwed it up so much. If you go look at the context of love is patient, love is kind, love is this, love is this, it's right after the first three verses where Paul says, you guys speak with tongues and you have gifts of prophecies and you do this and you're unloving and you're nothing and you're a clanging gong and a wonderful symbol. Remember those words? See, the context of that amazing definition of love is that they didn't love. 
And so as the children of God and as men of God, as we think about doing everything in love, I really want to talk about the Corinthian church, that they were epic failures in this space and in this area. They failed miserably. They were fractured, they were divided, they struggled, they were immoral, they, under, did, they abused love, they didn't understand. They abused the spiritual gifts and the spiritual privilege that God had given them. And so as we think about doing everything in love today, guys, we don't want to be like the Corinthian believers. And so as I thought about, man, how did they epically fail? Let me give you a couple of ways that the Corinthian church failed to love failed to do everything in love, and how if you and I aren't careful, we could fail in the same way. Thought number one is, man, we epically fail in the area of doing everything in love when we act Christianly, but we act Christianly in an unloving way. We act Christianly in an un un unloving way. We, we, we say the words of the Bible. We talk about love. We talk about grace. We talk about God's favor. We talk about those things, but we don't live that out. You say, Pastor, where do you see that? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1 to 3. This is really the prelude for the amazing definition of love. Love is patient. Love is kind. How many of you know that, right? These are the immediate three verses that precede that amazing definition of love, I think God's definition of love. And here's what Paul says, verse 1 to 3. He says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, in other words, if I speak or talk or act Christianly, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. He says, if I have the gift of prophecy or can, fa or can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, what does he say? I am nothing. Then he goes on, verse 3, he says, Hey, if I give all my possessions to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I, might, I may boast, but do not have love, I am nothing. You know what he was saying? He says, guys... You and I can walk through the hall and talk halls and talk King James to each other. We can define Greek words to each other. We can, we can interpret Scripture together and be completely unloving. And what does he say? Not, be nothing more than a loud gong, a clanging cymbal. We would be nothing and we'd gain nothing. So as men, man, it is easy for us to grasp the idea of being strong. I want you to know, I want my kids to say, you know what, dad's a pretty strong dude. Uh, I, I like the idea, I can grasp the idea of standing firm. I want my kids to know, listen, I'm willing to give ground until I'm not willing to give ground anymore. How many of you understand what I'm talking about? That's being a man, being on your guard. I mean, I understand that. But doing everything in love, that's, that requires a little work. Don't we understand that? To, to when I speak to my kids and I speak to my wife and I speak to those I'm in, um, in conversation with, to make sure that my conversation is filled with love and permeated with love. But it's not just my conversation and my life out there. It's my life in here. It's that, man, when you and I come to church and we talk about the things of God, let's do it in a, in a loving way. Sometimes if we aren't careful, we can find the grace of God and then rub the grace of God in other people's faces. 
Can't we? We can, we can be reminded over and over, and Satan does this to us over and over again our, about our failed past, but we can point out somebody's failed present. And so Paul says, listen, whatever we do, guys, don't ever forget this fifth pillar of biblical manhood is that we would learn to do everything in love. As you think about the idea of acting Christianly without being loving, look at the categories he talks about. He talks about the category of gifts of speech, prophecy, faith, benevolence, and even martyrdom. And as I thought about that, look back to verse 1. He says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels... But do not have love. I am a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. He says, man, love is greater than eloquence. If you went back to the Corinthian, um, the city of Corinth that day, they loved orators. Uh, they, they had a public square there, and it was not uncommon uh, for them to day after day have someone come out and speak in the public square. And if someone was really good, they would invite them back. And then they would invite them back. Why? Because they love the act and the idea of someone being an amazing orator. And so Paul takes something from the city square and he brings it into the church. And he says, listen, you can be an amazing orator. You can have eloquent speech, but if you don't have love when you bring it into God's house, he says, you're absolutely nothing. I love what one commentator said about this. He says, this was a statement of hyperbole. This is what Paul is saying, talking about Paul's statement of hyperbole concerning the exalted eloquence, which if void of love might be momentarily electrifying to those who hear. But long-term is nothing more than the clang of a gong that will go away. What is he saying? If you and I get together in God's house and in God's church, and we say something powerful and eloquent, but it's not bathed in love, it'll go away immediately. Somebody else put it this way, without a doubt, human words have amazing power. Our words can win or wound. Our words can kiss or kill. Our words can inspire or infuriate. How many of us understand that? That's exactly what Paul was saying. He says, listen, child of God, men of God, when we speak of the things of God, it always needs to be undergirded and permeated by a sense of love for brother, love for those who are lost, love for our community. But he doesn't stop with eloquent speech. He, he also moves on to prophecy. You know, a lot of times when we think prophecy, we have a tendency to think prophecy, well, that's predicting the future. But, but if you look, most of the Old Testament prophets, the word that they spoke were to current day Israelites. Yeah, there were many of the prophets. Daniel, he talks about the end times. Uh, others talk about the end times. But most of the words they spoke were to people that day about what's going on that day. And notice what he says. He says, if I can fathom all mysteries, or if I have the gift of prophecy, but do not have love, I'm nothing. He, he says, man, if you have a gift of reading God's Word and then making it clear to others, if it's a gift, and it is a gift, to, to make God's Word clear, to read some of the hard... There's some, how many of you know there's some hard things in the Bible to understand? And some people, man, I've had seminary professors or other pastors, they were just extremely gifted 
it taken some of the hard phrases in God's Word, some of the hard passages in God's Word, and making them clear and easy to understand. And so what Paul's saying is, that's great. If you have that talent, if you have that skill, if you have that gift, if you have that ability, that is a good thing. But he says, if you don't have love, it amounts to nothing. And he says, as a Corinthian church, man, you've got guys that speak in tongues. You've got eloquent speakers. You've got people that are, are, are amazing prophets. You've got a lot of good things, but you don't have love. And he goes, therefore, you are nothing. He doesn't stop right there. He says, um, jump down to verse 3 of uh, 1 Corinthians 13. He says, what about knowledge? He says, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries, and I have all knowledge... But do not have love, I am nothing. Man, he is just piling one Christian concept onto the other. What would we have a tendency to do if someone says, man, I'm a good speaker and I can understand the mysteries of God and I've got the gift of prophecy and I can understand this and I can understand that. We would say, man, you are a spiritual stud, right? But I love what Paul says here. You can have all of those things. And you can act like the greatest Christian on the face of the earth, but if you do not have love, it amounts to nothing. It amounts to nothing. Then as you continue reading, he says, you can even have faith. I love that. If I have faith that can move a mountain, but do not have love, I am nothing. As you think about faith, I want you to know Paul is not minimizing faith here. You look in God's Word and throughout Paul's writings, he, he maximizes faith. But what he was doing, he was looking at the Corinthian church, and he says, man, when it comes to faith, you guys have blown it. And he, faith is, is invaluable. How many of you know God's Word says, man, without faith, is, it is impossible to please God, right? He, he says, without faith, you can't even be saved. But he says, listen, if you have the faith that can move mountains, how many of you would like to have a mountain-moving faith? I would. Uh, that sounds to me like a faith that gets things done. Give me that kind of faith, right? That you look at a challenge, you see a difficulty, you see what's going on in our world, you see the darkness in our society, you see our education system, or you see your business, and you want to change it, and you have faith that gets things done. That's the kind of faith he's talking about. Paul is saying, you can even have a faith that gets things done at your house, at the office, in your neighborhood, in your community, in your space, in your business. He says, you can have that, but if you don't have love, he says, you got nothing. He says, you have nothing. And so the challenge for us is to think, man, regardless of what's going on, we have to have love. Paul even says, you can give all your money away to the poor. You can show up annually for our gift weekend and you can pack, uh, you know, 100,000 meals and you can have an Operation Christmas Child box and you can pat yourself on the back and talk about how good you are because you give. But he says, guess what? He says, if you do all that, if you give all your possessions to the poor, but do not have love, you gain nothing. Man, that's a challenge, guys. That is a challenge for you and a challenge for me that, guys, don't ever forget. That just being able to understand God's Word doesn't give us permission to be unloving. 
To be able to teach or speak God's love doesn't give us permission to be unloving. To be able to interpret God's word, to be able to have the faith that move, moves mountain, to step up and feed those who are hungry, none of those are a hall pass to not be loving. And Paul just kind of calls them out on it and says, man, our response is even in our giving, even in our loving, even in the meeting and in the needs of others, that you and I desperately need to be loving. Here's the last straw. He says, you can either even be burned at the stake for your faith, and it amount to nothing. You know, in, in their day, uh, being a martyr for the faith was a very real thing. How many of you know? Jesus ultimately was martyred because he claimed to be who he was. Then we know Stephen, the first deacon, was stoned. You look through the New Testament. James uh, lost his head, basically. I mean, John the Baptist lost his head. James lost his life. Peter ends up losing his life. You can go look in those days. Nero loved to take Christians and stick them on stakes out in his garden, put oil on them and light them. Why? Simply because they were Christians. You would think if they had it all, if anybody had it at all, it would be them because they're martyrdom. Notice what Paul says. He says, even if you give your body over to hardship that you may boast, but do not have love, you gain nothing. So thought, guys, number one, if you and I are not going to epically fail at the area of love, is we have to make sure with all of our Christian disciplines of studying God's Word and teaching God's Word and feeding the poor and caring for those who are needy and even being willing to take one for the team, martyrdom. We can't do it without love or it amounts to nothing. Or it amounts to nothing. Here's the second way they failed. First of all, they, they did a lot of Christian things. They said a lot of Christian things. You read in there, they even worshipped. They argued while, while in the midst of worship. Here's the second thing they did wrong is we fail to be loving when we are divided over non-essential things. We fail to be loving when we are divided over non-essential things. If you look at the Corinthian church, they were divided over everything. They were divided over everything and very little of it was essential to division. Notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10 to 17. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you, perf you are perfectly united in mind and in thought. Look at verse 11. He says, My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have come and informed me that there are quarrels among you. Look at verse 12. He says, What I mean is this. One of you says, I am of Paul, another says, I'm of Apollos, another says, I'm of Cephas, still another says, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in my name? What was he saying? He's saying, man, there are divisions that are happening over non-essential things. And Paul was saying, listen, don't say you're a follower of me and not a follower of his. We're both appointed to share the gospel. Matter of fact, you jump down, we won't go there. You jump down a couple of chapters. Paul goes back into this same idea. Some of you say you'll follow this person. Some say you'll follow that person. Paul asks the question, who are we? And he answers his own rhetorical question. He goes, you want to know who, who we are? We're just people who are sharing the gospel with you. That's all we were. 
We were just the people that were pointing you to Jesus. Don't follow us. And so the Corinthian church was dividing up and arguing and quarreling. And we fell at the point of love when we divide up over non-essential things. If you go do a little research uh, on what divides churches, uh, it would be shocking where the idea of false doctrine falls in the list. I'm going to say that again. If you do a survey, when they survey pastors or survey ministers or churches, and they say, what causes division in your church? False doctrine is way down the list. Y'all can tell me, what do you think are some of the things that divide churches and cause conflict in churches? Somebody just blurt something out. Music. <laughs> exactly, music, right? Yeah, carpet. Yeah, we say color of carpet, right? Yeah, let's take all the carpet out. Whether we should have carpet or don't have carpet. Do you have coffee shop or don't have a coffee shop? It's shocking. Yeah, there you go. Uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things that, what, what, do you, what do you think? And Paul is saying, we quarrel and fight and we argue about non-essential things. Let me just tell you this, and you can write this down. There are some legit reasons. Say this again. There are some legit reasons for a church to split. There are some legit reasons for a church to fight. There are some legit reasons for you to leave a church. But most people fight and leave and split over non-essential things. You say, Pastor, what are some of the essential things? Let me just tell you this. I'm, I'm going to tell you this and anybody listening to this podcast. If you are ever surrounded by anybody that questions the deity of Jesus Christ, find a new church. If I or any pastor stands in this pulpit and begins to doubt the deity of Christ, get a new pastor. Take care of Gina, get a new pastor. The virgin birth, someone begins to doubt the virgin birth, get a new pastor, get a new church. Someone begins to question salvation by faith. Can I tell you, these are legit reasons for us to fight, guys. Do we understand that? These are legit reasons. This is where there has to be a, a dividing line. You know, talking about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. When someone questions the Trinity, get a new church. Get a new pastor. There are legit reasons for us to fight. So we need to understand, man, whatever it is, uh, uh, Scripture, the inspiration and authority of Scripture... If all of a sudden, I talked about it Sunday, you know, there are, there are those who are beginning to rewrite the words of God to accommodate culture so the Bible won't be in conflict. Listen, if I ever do that, get a new pastor. All right? If you don't like the music, come in late. How many of you understand? <laughs> do you understand? If you don't like the preaching... Suck it up. You understand what I'm saying, guys? I'm not saying there's not a reason to split a church. I'm not saying there's not a reason to leave a church. I'm not saying there's not a reason to fight over it. I'm just saying make sure it's a good one. Do we understand that? Because if it's not, Paul says you'll be nothing. 
He said, you'll be dividing up over dumb stuff. And get, man, we cannot right now in our culture divide up over dumb stuff. We've got to get back to the main thing. It is about Jesus. He is fully God, fully man. He is God's son, the second person of the Trinity that was sent to this earth, that was born in Bethlehem. We're about to celebrate that. That lived a perfect life. They didn't come to be served, but came to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many, to be delivered into the hands of sinful men, betrayed by one of the disciples that he chose, ultimately nailed to a cross and still looked into heaven and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He died and was placed in a tomb that you and I deserved. But he rose again the third day that because and through faith, you and I can have forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life. Folks, those are the main things. Do we understand that? Those are the main things. And we fail at the point of love when we divide up over stupid stuff. So guys, as we journey forward, we're going to act Christianly. But we're going to do it with love, right? We're going to preach the word. We're going to teach the word. We're going to love our neighbors. We're going to feed the poor. We're going to interpret scripture. We're going to, we're going to uh, plumb the depths of the mysteries of God. We're going to do it all, but we're going to do it with love. Man, we're going to hold on to the essentials of faith. We're not going to divide over, up over the non-essentials. But then there's a third area that they failed. Notice it. We'll pick it up. We fell at the point of love when we misapply the principles of God. When we misapply the principles of God, when we take a clear principle in Scripture and we misapply it, you say, where do you see this? 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. It's a principle that's pretty simple. Don't do anything to hurt a weaker brother. How many of us remember that principle, right? Don't do anything to hurt a weaker brother. Well, let's go back and see one of the examples. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Here's what it says. Now about food sacrificed to idols. So what had happened is there had become a division in the church again, right? Don't ever think all oh, the New Testament churches were the perfect church and we're a messed up church. What had happened is in that day, uh, it was not uncommon in that society for uh, animals day by day to be sacrificed to the false gods. Do we understand that? And then it was not uncommon for that animal to be skinned, that meat to be taken down to the marketplace. Then someone even within the church to roll down to their local market street, right, and buy meat that was sacrificed to idols. There were some who were saying, man, I can't eat meat that was sacrificed to idols, or tacitly, I'm supporting idol worship. There were others who would say, man, it really doesn't matter. The, the idol doesn't represent an actual God, therefore, give me the meat, right? And so instead of this just being a tension, uh, somebody saying, I don't think, I, I'm just going to the marketplace and buying food for my family. And someone else saying, man, I can't buy food that was sacrificed to idols. My conscience won't allow. Instead of everybody just going, well, you be you and you be you, right? What has to happen? They bring it into the church and they fight over it. And those that didn't eat meat sacrificed to idols were acting more spiritual than those who did eat meat. And those who did eat meat said, no, 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 no. I'm more spiritual than you because that doesn't bother me. 
And so Paul gives us this principle of do everything you do so you don't hurt or harm a weaker brother. So now let's continue to read. Now that you understand the whole idea in that day, they would sacrifice day by day to all these false gods and these false idols. Then they would take that meat to the marketplace and you and I could buy it. Now, I don't know if it had a sign on it like some do. says, hey, sacrificed meat, unsacrificed meat. I don't know if you had a kosher, unkosher. I'm not sure how they delineated it. But this became a big enough issue. Think about it. It had become such a divisive issue that Paul had to address it. And he spends a whole chapter on it. And he actually circles back to it a little later in this book. But here it is. He says, now, about food that is sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge, right? We all have something. But knowledge puffs us up while love builds us up. Notice he's already putting the word in there. He said, at the end of the day, knowledge is what puffs us up. Love builds us up. Boy, it's amazing to me how many times in this book Paul deals with the division and brings up love. Deals with the division and brings up love. He says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. All right, so what is he saying? Okay, all you spiritually smart guys out there, you're not quite as smart as you think you are. So he says, but not everyone possesses this knowledge. He says, some people are still accustomed to idols. That when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. Notice what he says. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. What is he doing? He's saying, guys, we're dividing up over food, and food doesn't bring us to God, right? Faith brings us to God. He says, we're fighting over food. It's kind of like, remember, remember, practice, right? You know, we're talking about practice here. He says, we're talking about food. He says, man, if you don't want to eat the food that was sacrificed to idols, don't eat the food. If you want to eat the food that was sacrificed to idols, eat the food. He says, it really doesn't matter. But notice the principle as he brings. He says, be careful. Here's the challenge. He says, be careful, however, that you exercise, verse 9, the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block for the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? Look at verse 11. He said, So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge that is puffed up. He says, when you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Look at verse 13. He says, therefore, if what I eat, he's talking about spiritually strong. He says, therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall, in, fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. So here's the principle. When we, we fail at love, when we misapply a biblical principle. Let's go back to this last verse, verse 13. Paul is saying, therefore, if what I eat, talking about Paul, causes a, my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. So here, here's the principle. The principle is pretty clear that the stronger brother or sister in Christ ought not to do anything 
that will harm the weaker brother and sister in Christ. Isn't that the biblical principle, right? That those who are more mature would not do anything in their lives to cause a weaker brother or sister to fall. It is not uncommon. This is exactly what was happening here. It's not uncommon for us to twist that around. And those who are stronger and more mature in their faith are constantly telling the weaker brother and sister what to do and what not to do. How many of us understand that? See, the biblical principle here is for the protection of the weaker brother, not for the protection of the stronger brother and sister so they won't get offended. See, what he's saying is that those who are mature in their faith, we ought to be above that. That if someone wants to have a drink, and that's where they are, and you're the stronger brother, that shouldn't offend you. Right? We're talking about something that we have uh, you know, permission in Scripture. Paul actually told Timothy, now don't take this home and, and live it out here. He says, hey, have a little wine for your frequent ailments. Now listen, if you've got a stomach ache, have a little wine. All right? And so don't walk around with Tums and wine all the time at church now. But the biblical principle is always this that those who are further along in their faith, those who are stronger in their faith, ought not to do anything to cause a weaker brother to stumble. The biblical principle is not those who are spiritually mature and strong should be telling the weaker brother what to do and what not to do because it offends them. Does that make sense? And there's a difference between being offended and causing someone to stumble. I'm going to say that again. There is a difference between being offended and causing someone else to stumble. Causing someone to stumble means simply to trip them up in their faith. To say that again, causing someone to stumble means to trip them up in their faith, to throw roadblocks in their path. Well, one of the greatest roadblocks we can throw in the path of a, of a immature believer or a new believer is a roadblock of judgmentalism of attacks, of throwing an opinion around to do anything that would trip them up and cause them to stumble. So child of God, if you count yourself as mature, if we want to win in this pillar, we can never act Christianly and talk Christianly without love. We can never divide up over non-essential things. We have to keep the main thing the main thing. And we always have to take the biblical principles and apply them correctly. And to apply all biblical principles correctly always means those who are more spiritually mature do everything they can to care for those who are weaker brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's pray. Father, let us as we leave here today Man, as men of God, as mature men, let us use the gifts that you've given us of prophecy, of, uh, uh, of tongues, of, of whatever it is, of uh, understanding mysteries, of uh, uh, feeding those who are hungry, of, of giving ourselves over uh, even to endure pain and hardship and difficulty, but let us always do it in love. God, let us not divide up 
over small things, over little things. But let us always keep the main thing the main thing. And finally, God, as we grow in our faith, let's always live with a loving concern for the weaker brother. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Men's Bible Study. For more information about Cottonwood Creek Church, visit cottonwoodcreek.org. That's cottonwoodcreek.org.